They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. podcast with your host Juan Ayala and welcome back to another installment of philosophical ramblings with myself and Anderson Silver what's up Anderson how you been bro I've been good man how you been hanging in there dude trying to hold on to the to to stay sane as long as I can to the clutches of sanity right we're we're, we're I think there was this thing I came across where Frederick Nietzsche was he went mad because he tried to look too deep so we could probably get into that here in a little bit, but I've been all right, man. Just hanging in there, don't have a lot of projects going on, have a lot of big things planned for the podcast uh, coming soon. So that should be a, that should be good. And yeah, man, I, I've been good. I've been good. I can't complain. I'm blessed. And I, I, can you say that quote that you said before we start recording? Because I love that. Yeah, that's actually, I think it's one of my top three quotes that people use. Um, it, we all complain when things don't go our way. So I tell people, hey, just go the way things are. Then everything is your way. Who said that? life is going to be. Life is going to do. Is that Yoda that said that? No, that's me. That's all Anderson Silver, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Here I am thinking you're quoting like some crazy philosopher of history, and then it's just myself. Okay, well. <laughs> no, that's my number two. My number one, I think, most popular quote uh, is... Uh, Virtue is not perfection, but just doing your best. Virtue is not perfection, but doing your best. So everyone, you know, this is what this show is all about, about trying to understand and comprehend philosophy from an idiot like me and Anderson Silver. So here I am trying to put together and connect the dots on things that some people spend their entire lives and I do research for about a month or so and put it together the best way I can. So hopefully here goes nothing, right? 
We'll get through this. We'll get through this together, bro. <laughs> so I have a couple of quotes I wanted to read here. Uh, some of the quotes that stood out to me. That's that there are some here where a lot of people don't know that came from from Nietzsche. We have here. Uh, before we get into it, I want to make sure everybody follows the social media. Patreon, patreon.com slash the one one podcast. Uh, make sure to join the Telegram group as well. I like hearing feedback from you guys like to get ideas and I like hearing from the fans. So please make sure. And I don't know if you want to plug your stuff, Anderson, or I'll plug it in the show notes. Yeah. At Anderson silver author, uh, you know, all my stuff is on the website, uh, stoicism for a better life.com. Everything's free. Um, go check it out. You might like what you, you might like, you might like philosophy. You never know. I, I'm sure. I, I mean, I love philosophy. Then the, the problem is that for example, Nietzsche, a lot of it is open for interpretation. A lot of things have been, have been misinterpreted and he never really specified, Hey, this is what this means. So yeah, it's, it's interpreted a hundred different ways. And it's like looking at clouds. You see one thing, I see another, you hear one thing, I hear another. So here goes Frederick Nietzsche, and we're going to get into it a couple of, uh, going to talk about his life, philosophy, and a, di- a bunch of different philosophies that he had, which were a lot that influenced society as we know it today. I mean, this is a very big character in history who himself, he was kind of, I, I think he was kind of flip-flopping, but we'll, but we'll get into that. Uh, the, the quotes that I have here is, sometimes people don't want to hear the truth because they don't, they don't want their illusions destroyed. There are two mm. different types of people in the world, those who want to know and those who want to believe. I have another one here. Mm. To live is to suffer. To survive is to find some meaning in the suffering. We have another one here, one of my favorites. Whoever fights monsters should see it should see to it that in the process he does not become a monster. And if you gaze long enough into an abyss, the abyss will gaze back into you. And then another one where we're going to be getting into later. <laughs> When a woman has scholarly inclinations, there is usually something wrong with her sexually, uh, with her sexual sexuality. And we'll get into that in his life and why, probably why he said that. (laughs) (laughs) We have here, the tree that would grow to heaven must send its roots to hell. And I think Carl Jung said something like that too. Two podcasts ago, I was using that quote. From uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the beautiful work, dude. I had never heard about that. And it was one of the ones that resonated with me because, it's again, it has a lot of symbolism. And I believe it was towards the end of his life, right, before he was driven to madness or some... Uh, yeah, it was earlier on. But, uh, yeah, it is definitely his most popular, his seminal work, if you will. Thus Spoke Zarathustra is really where all his ideas uh, emanate from. And then out of... The last one here, out of life's school of war, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. A lot of people use that. A lot of people yep. use that. And that came yep. from from Nietzsche. Yep. A lot of people use that. But in the wrong context today, we're going to correct them. Yes. That was that was one of the things when I was diving into this. I'm like, wait, I've heard that before, but it's, it's used completely different. But that's the beautiful thing about philosophy too, right, Anderson? That you can use it however you'd like. Exactly. Exactly. Everyone's truth is their own, right? Exactly. We have here. That's what we're going to, since we're touching on it, when I say we're going to clarify it later on, it's because people take Nietzsche's work a little too seriously and straightforward. And we're going to tie it back to the individual and their own uh, moral code uh, later on. 
Sounds like religion to me. <laughs> People take it too 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 literal and too, you know, to the T. We have here Frederick Frederick Wilhelm Wilhelm Nietzsche. He was a German philosopher, cultural critic, amateur composer, and a philologist who has had a, a profound impact and influence on modern intellectual history. He began his career as a classical philologist before turning to philosophy later on in his life. He was very enamored with the Greeks, right? He studied the Greeks in depth, and he believed that the Greeks, uh, uh, that the Greeks would be bringers of a culture which somehow disappeared in Europe, mostly due to Christianity. This is where, again, what influenced him to say God is dead, and we'll get into that. He was born October 15th or 18th, depending where you look, 1844, and died August 25th of the year 1900. He was born into a religious household. His father was a Lutheran pastor, a Lutheran priest, and he had a sister and a brother who died at the age of two. He was named after the uh, after King Frederick Wilhelm IV of Prussia, who had turned 49 when he was born, and his father, he would later on go to drop the middle name Wilhelm, or Wilhelm, however you want to say it. And Nietzsche's father died in 1849, and Nietzsche was left with a household full of mostly women. His mother, his sister, his maternal grandmother, his two aunts, and some say that this influenced his ideologies, being surrounded by all these feminine figures in his life. Do you have anything to say about that, Anderson? Um... I, I agree, I guess. I mean, uh, we're going to get into his work, but uh, his work always goes back to suffering, and he talks about how much he suffered in life. And famously, Nietzsche always says, I wish to my dearest friends, to people who I really care about, I hope that they would suffer so much because he believed that uh, uh, since suffering is not optional, right? suffering is not optional, suffering is a certainty, right? So you can either be like the Stoics and look internal and try and be like, okay, I'll deal with the suffering better. Or you can be, uh, Nietzsche was saying, uh, you know, will to power, go get that, go, you know, grab the bull by the horns and okay, suffering is optional. So suffering, no problem for me. Suffering just means I learn. Suffering just means I'm getting better. Now I have a new trick. Now I have a new survival tactic. Now I've been proven wrong and embarrassed. Aha, I have this information. Next time I will come out on top in the debate so on and so forth. Hence, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Absolutely. And we'll get into that ideology. I have a lot to say about that. In his earlier years, he attended an all-boys school, and he his records show that he excelled in Christian theology because he wanted to be a, a, a Lutheran priest, how his father was a pastor. And some of his classmates called him the little minister. And one of them described him as a Jesus in the temple. So I can imagine this little... Guy, you know, like this little person with with a dope ass mustache, how he has going around his school. And he was said to recite the Bible where he would bring people to tears from how passionate he was and how he would read through the verses. And mind you, throughout this time, he had gone through a lot of pain and suffering as a young man. Anyways, from his father dying and all this stuff. So he was very hardened. He was a very hardened little boy. And again, they called him the little the little minister, which I thought was hilarious. We have here, at the age of 18, he lost all faith in his religion. He searched for a new God where he thought he had found one in the Superman. And he had put everything into religion. And after that was gone, he was, less, he was left with a sense of emptiness. 
He was the youngest person to ever hold chair, the chair of the classical philology at the University of Basel in 1869 at the age of 24. Unfortunately, he had been plagued with various illnesses all throughout his life. He was very sickly, and he had to resign in 1879 due to these health issues. And during this time, since he was bedridden for most of the time, he wrote his most, uh, his core writings, right? A lot of his influential things, because he was just laying in bed all day, and he was like, hey, I have to get these thoughts out, so let me start writing. He never married. He proposed to Lou Salmon. Salome, I think that's how you say it. He proposed three times to her and the three times she rejected him. And she maintained that she wanted to focus on her life's work and practice celibacy. But then later on, she was a bit of a whore and she went to go on to marry, had various open relationships and including in a book that she wrote an alleged affair with Sigmund Freud, the Sigmund Freud. So here you, that's why again, that quote that I put in there, if she's talking about you know, not want to do something. There's something wrong with her sexuality. Well, it's, she's fucking around with somebody else, bro. <laughs> so in 1889, at the age of 45, he suffered, suffered a collapse. And afterward, he lost complete loss of his mental faculties. And some say that he collapsed after watching a horse getting flogged in the streets. And I, I believe somebody said it yeah. was a homage to, he was reading, da, I, I don't know how to say this guy's name ever, da, Dovchesky's Crime and Punishment. Is that how you say his name? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Close. Fyodor Dostoevsky. What Anderson said, uh, his book, Crime and Punishment, which Nietzsche was allegedly reading at the time. So mm. again, that, that they say that that was, he saw some horse, right? And, and getting beat and, uh, the famous composer picked him up and they took him to the mental asylum where he would spend 11 years of his life in total mental darkness. First in a basal asylum, then in Nuremberg with his mother. And this is where he wrote his letters of insanity that they've, that they've dubbed, where he would sign it as Dionysus. And he would sign it as the crucified one, or uh, uh, you know, as hint to Jesus. Again, very weird life that this guy had. And... The most fucked up part that I found about this, his remaining years after the death of his mother, he would be in the care of his sister, Elizabeth. And his sister would let people come and visit him. Almost, I heard it described as, as almost as a demigod in some, some meditative state. Because again, he was being paraded almost. People would come and visit him and like, hey, this is Frederick. He can't talk to you. He's just sitting there, just blank stare. And this was his sister that would that would do this to him. And I think she was very, uh, I think she was a fucked up bitch, if you want to, if I can't find any words for it. He would, <laughs> the, the breakdown that he had was attributed to an atypical general paralysis caused by a dormant ter, ter, tertial, territory, I don't know, syphilis. Uh, I don't know, no, definitely not that. Yeah, territory syphilis and i know people are gonna be like man this guy doesn't know how to fucking read <laughs> my sources are trust me bro and wikipedia no i'm kidding i, I watch a bunch of of documentaries and uh read a couple excerpts so yeah later the diagnosis included gener degeneration of the cerebral blood vessels and a retroorbital meningioma a tumor of the brain and the meninges behind the right eye so again he had this 
case of syphilis that went tr- untreated for a long time. And some he had it since say, he was a kid. Yes, some say. Again, this is this is hearsay. He said, she said, type of thing. That the reason that he got syphilis was because he was a homosexual. Again, nothing against homosexuals. This is history. Uh, some people say that he got syphilis from an encounter with a prostitute in a brothel uh, in Cologne or Lip- Leipzig. Uh, that was an all-men brothel, all-male brothel. So, And this was later confirmed by Freud, claiming his source was Otto Binswagner. And Nietzsche's friend, Paul Dacian, claimed that he was a man who had never touched a woman. So, again, we have this thing after he had died, right? Uh, Talking about that this is what happened. This is how he got syphilis. So, if that's true or not, I don't know. Because a lot of his philosophy, if he was truly a homosexual and did like men, he would have been writing a lot of things against his own philosophy, against his own internal philosophy, right? Because, again, being in the church... He never, he never overtly wrote any of these, right? It's, uh, it's one thing to interpret things a certain way. It's another thing to interpret certain parts of his work and say, ah, oh, he must have been this way when he was talking about all this other stuff. As a Stoic, I'm going to stick with what I know. For example, he did have syphilis. Mm-hmm. And he did go crazy after he, he saved that uh, horse getting flogged in the middle of the street. Mm-hmm. Um, beyond that, like, I, I don't know. I don't care how he got syphilis. I don't care what book he was reading when he went crazy. You know what I mean? Like these things are inconsequential to what he wrote. Mm. And if we want to try and decipher what he wrote, we have to just focus on what he wrote to find the commonality throughout his work. Because as you've pointed out, and we'll I'll explain later on, we'll get into why his work is so con- self-contradictory, which incidentally makes him so popular. Um, and, and because he, it, we'll explain why he kept flip-flopping on himself, right? I do, I do the same thing. That's why I always say I reserve the right to change my mind whenever because we must. Yeah. Because he can't get locked into one certain thing because something else comes along that will change the, your viewpoint or your perspective on something. And it will just completely destroy what you believe before that, especially looking into all these conspiracies and shit. Exactly. And you know what? Let's turn this into a Nietzsche thing. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger but in from his perspective what what he meant was suffering mm-hmm. right uh, uh, uh suffering was strong so you were saying uh, just before um just before uh, the the internal conflicts if he was actually a homosexual or not or before uh, no nah, sorry bro uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into it we'll get into it we'll get into it i i apologize i it is 6 30 and i can hear my kids in the background background and i was just trying to figure out whether i should try and sneakily text uh my wife and say please the kids to go to the basement i can't hear my brain my brain could not have both conversations at the same time you can leave this as part of the podcast if you want this is just me being totally real um i do the same thing too bro trust me (laughs) back to you so Sorry. he died in the, the year 1900 eventually. His writing spans into philosophical polemics, poetry, cultural criticism, and fiction, right? And he wrote a lot of aphorisms and irony. So he writes in a lot of these different allegories, if you will, these l- different stories. And 
I have here elements that stood out in his philosophy include the, his radical critique of truth in favor of perspectivism. And he obviously critiqued Christian morality, religion, and he talked about the master-slave morality, the aesthetics of affirmation of life in response to both the dead God and the profound crisis of nihilism. And he came up with different doctrines, right? We're going to talk about the Ubermensch, his doctrine of eternal return, recurrence, which I love. And it can be seen in a, in a lot of movies. And he t his work also touched on art, philology, history, music, religion, tragedy, culture, science, right? He had, he had this thing with scientists that he wanted to not discredit them, but they're like, hey, people are taking things a little bit too literal. And let's talk about the cat in the room, right? The, the elephant in the room, if you will, not the cat. After his death, his sister Elizabeth became the caretaker and editor of Nietzsche's manuscripts. And she edited his unpublished writings to fit her German ultranationalist ideology, while often contradicting or disrupting Nietzsche's stated opinions, which he stated he was very anti-Semitism uh, uh, anti and nationalism. But people associate Nietzsche's name with, with the Nazism, fascism, and Adolf Hitler, because I think she even met Adolf Hitler, too. She was up there in the in the woodwork with Hitler like she was you know she was uh she married a leading chauvinist and anti-semite his name was Bernard Forster and he eventually committed suicide but we have again these reprints of Nietzsche's work after he had passed away where it would push these ideologies of Nazism and uh the ultra ultra nationalism and all this stuff and scholars, 20th century scholars have come out and defended Nietzsche against the interpretation and corrected a lot of the available editions of his writing. Uh, so, again, he's had a profound impact on philosophy till this day. And how you mentioned earlier, a lot of his ideas, since they didn't present them as concrete and they were open for interpretation, it is very controversial. Yeah. And they provoke passionate reactions from people. Like when you say God is dead, that pisses a lot of people off. <laughs> Indeed. So Nietzsche's writing has been described as a case of free revolutionary thought. And that they are revolutionary in their structure, but they didn't really contribute to a revolutionary movement per se. So it didn't cause riots in the street because of all this shit. It was more the way he structured the, the, the his writings and the problems that he presented that was revolutionary. That was different because he was talking about a lot of things that the ancients talked about, like ancient Egyptians and all this stuff. But in this day and age, this was revolutionary from his point of view. Yeah, it was a brand, it was a brand new perspective. Mm -hmm. So his writings have also been described as a revolutionary project in which his philosophy serves as a foundation of a European cultural rebirth. And I found it interesting because I've been I've been running into this a lot. As I start to ingest more and more material, I'm running into certain things in other writings that I'm reading with things that I'm currently researching. Nietzsche actually inspired Aleister Crowley. And Crowley came to believe that certain individuals with training could exert 
exert the force of their w own will upon the subconscious mind through magical and meditative practice, and then subsequently generate a form of power that could be expended to cause mysterious yet tangible changes to the universe surrounding them. So again, the will to power it was this metaphysical force that manifests itself differently within everybody else. And I found it interesting because a guy who is very rational that talked about how the ancients such as Plato and Socrates were demeaning this actual reality by talking about it being a reflection of a more divine reality, pretty much degrading and calling this reality fake. But then he talks about something like the will to power, this, this thing that's just there in everybody that will manifest itself differently depending on the circumstances. And again, he influenced Aleister Crowley out of all fucking people. Which I fucking hate that guy, but it is what it is. Did you want to add anything in there, uh, Anderson? Well, we'll talk again more about will to power uh, uh, later on. I don't know this is like a high-level intro, but uh, yeah, even the will to power is up to uh, interpretation. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned the ancients a lot. Of you know, he mentions Plato and Aristotle. Aristotle was the realist. Plato was the idealist. Right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, same as a, a perspectivism right, would be the equivalent of idealism. Uh, and Nietzsche was against that. He was saying, no, 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 there's one objective truth. Um, but please, uh, let's continue with the intro. I have here, uh, I'm going to be getting into the philosophy now, uh, his critique of mass culture. And I put this quote on here. I don't know who is by. Hard times create strong men. Strong, ma strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And weak men create hard times. Because... Nietzsche held a pessimistic view on modern society and culture. He believed that the press and the mass culture led to conformity and brought about mediocrity. And the lack of intellectual progress was leading to a decline of the human species. So in his opinion, some people would be able to overcome, uh, to, to become superior individuals through the use of willpower. Again, this will, the will to power. And by rising above mass culture, those, those persons would produce higher, brighter, and healthier human beings. And there was something in, in earlier on in his life where he wanted to live in a commune, like between higher, intellectually higher individuals. So it's like you're against Nazism and you're against the Aryans and all that stuff, but then you want to live in like this new Atlantis. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, but again, that's an interpretation, right? I, I also believe, for example, that <laughs> on every one of the episodes that we do, I say I am against everybody having a free vote. Democracy doesn't work as it is, as we see it today. And I know that triggers some people, but if you get into like, why, what am I trying to say? I know those words summarize an idea, but uh, let's understand what he meant behind it. And the case with Nietzsche was, it was to cultivate, cultivate his mind by being able to have those um, uh, conversations at the next level, like an athlete. What do you do when you want to improve your game? You go play with someone better than you, right? Mm -hmm. You don't go play with the, the, the kid down the street that you can ace easily. So you need to challenge yourself. Same thing on the mental, in the mental arena. Uh, if you're going to be, um, if you're going to surround yourself by people that are your, uh, that are going to challenge you intellectually, that's, and if that's what you want to push, if intellectual development is what's important to you, well, then that's probably where you want to go live, right? Mm -hmm. And a famous quote from Epictetus that I love is, two charcoals, one's lit and one's dead. When you put them next to each other, the lit one is either going to light the dead one or the dead one's going to stifle the lit one. Mm -hmm. We are the same. We must be very careful who we choose to spend our time with. 
Should I hang out with you, Anderson? I don't know. I, I'm not <laughs> saying I'm a good influence, man. <laughs> uh, no, and 100%. I mean, that, that exactly what you're talking about. I, I can get behind that. When you put it that way, I understand it. But then, like a cult, right? People get lost yep. in translation, and yep. it could get kind of hairy. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Like as Nazism, like uh, it's it's crazy to me that there's actual writings of his that was very much against anti-Semitism, and he like forbade his sister from ha- marrying that guy. And then you know when he lost his mind, and and it, you know his mother wanted nothing to do with the estate, so his sister took over the estate, and she just you know t- took the liquid paper or whatever the equivalent is back then, uh, the, the Fox or whatever it just started rewriting everything and um there we go she fitted into her reality mm-hmm. and um we have to remember also nietzsche comes from a long line of german um uh philosophers at that time right um he was trained by the mac daddy um uh, schopenhauer uh-huh. right uh, he grew up on this guy stuff schopenhauer was super super heavy for, uh, uh, academic uh, philosopher so that's where nietzsche gets a lot of his kind of um, using too many words sometimes or not enough words sometimes. Uh, and also it was very condescending tone. Uh, both Nietzsche and uh, Schopenhauer opened their books by saying, you should probably stop reading this. Yes, I'm talking to you, the reader. You're too dumb to get this. You should probably stop reading this. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty, I mean, that, that's kind of off-putting, but it would make me want to read it even more exactly would <laughs> <laughs> be like what like i'm not no one of, bro one of the, the my pet peeves is when somebody tells me you just wouldn't understand juan you just wouldn't understand <laughs> i hate when i hate bro i trigger triggers me like what do you mean i wouldn't understand like you don't know you don't know me you don't know me bro <laughs> yeah he was also in with uh was it uh wagner i forgot his first name was a very inspirational figure in his life earlier on he saw a father figure in him because supposedly he looked like his father as well so you have people who are very influential in history that influenced him and he would later on go on to write it they shaped his ideology ultimately and he would go on to write about it i have here apollonian and dionysian uh, because nietzsche thought that if you understood greek culture properly that the greeks Far from being a people who are simply serene, simply happy and joyful, they knew the depth of suffering. And he worked out a thesis in relation to this, whereby he interpreted Greek drama and specifically the role of chorus in Greek drama. So back again to his philologist in him, where he was enamored and loved these Greek dramas. And he thought that these people understood actual pain and suffering. And then what I was going to say earlier was, that he said in order for you to be happy in order for you to be to to actually experience happiness you need to experience the same amount of suffering at the same time what are your thoughts on that do you think that's actually a thing where in order for because maybe you wouldn't know it's happiness unless you suffered or it's that some of that word wizardry that Actually, I mean, if, if you repeat the word, it doesn't actually say anything because everything is a subjective target here. So, so, so what are we trying to say? Um, to me, a lot of Nietzsche's work, and 
he was not a Stoic. He says he speaks against the Stoic in some of his books, but he speaks against certain parts of Stoicism. Um, the way I read his books, to me, it's clear there's a lot of Stoicism in his work, almost like a René Descartes, uh, almost like myself. But then he takes those parts that he likes and then he finishes the rest with what he doesn't like. And there are parts of Stoicism that I dislike as well, right? Um, so very Stoic in his approach um, um, in the way he wrote these things. Um, and I'm going off. Uh, I digress as always, as usual. You're, you're good, bro. You're good. I just, but that's like everybody else. I mean, you're going to nitpick things from different ideologies that you like and leave out the shit that you don't like. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I can, you know, I can understand that. Right. Uh, but to circle back to, to what we're saying, it's one has to remember that happiness sadness suffering whatever this emotional gambit is always going to be very subjective where the stoic might say hey since it's subjective learn your own range and stick into that mm. uh, nietzsche says fuck the range i'm gonna suffer anyways let's burn this mother to the ground let's go right yeah um problem is uh, and this is where i critique nietzsche is when you go external like that, where does it end? When does it stop? Right? It, it approaches mm -hmm. uh, chaos with no goal at the end. There's no focus. And you can see this in his work. This is why he's always flip-flopping in what he writes. Whatever he happens to have in his mind, will to power, bitch, let's put it on paper, let's go. You know, this is, this is what I'm talking about right now. But two years later, he has some type of experience, and then he starts writing different stuff. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have the same attitude anymore. And it's like, okay, let's go write this now. Whereas somebody who looks internal might reflect on it a little longer and will be a little bit more reserved in what they communicate externally. So all this to say, I think um, Nietzsche, Rene Descartes, the Stoics, the ancient Greeks, the Romans, these were all, they're all aligned up until the very last step. And this is where a, a Stoic says, look, this is a bullshit game. We'll participate to help people along, but screw this. Nietzsche saying, it might be a bullshit game, but it's still a game. I'm here. I'm going to make this my bitch. Mm -hmm. Which I can respect that, too. I mean, because that's like what they say, taking, take the bull by the horns. True. And, you know, take the bull signifying whatever you want to signify. So, again, back to the Greek dramas. He criticized people like Socrates that came around and, and talked about seeing the world as in terms of virtue, happiness, right? The, the command, these are commanding forces. The virtues are the commanding forces in life. And Nietzsche disagreed with that. And he said, if you try to rationalize life to moralize life, you're already going against life. So again, these people who would bring forth this idea of, Again, back to Christianity, where it was like, hey, you need to live by certain standards, right? Being how you mentioned the the ultimate goal at the end of the tunnel type of thing. It's like, mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. and in order but, to be a good, you need to follow these morals in order to achieve that. He's like, no, it's like, that's not what fucking life is about. It's about, like you said, taking it and, and making it your bitch. I mean, at the end of the day, really. If that's what you want. But uh, reread the quote, that last quote you read. Exactly. So it's a bunch of notes. So Nietzsche is concerned it's, uh, when people like Socrates come along and try to say that we must view the world in terms of virtue, happiness, reason, 
Uh, these are the commanding forces. And Nietzsche said, no, indeed, life is not like that. If you try to rational, if you try to rationalize life, to moralize life, you are already going against life. Doesn't that sound a lot like go the way things are <laughs> yeah. and stop trying to control <laughs> shit? <laughs> yeah, no. And, and here we go here. Um, so a Greek culture, which was the realization that existence involves suffering. And his hope was that there will be cultural renewal when this tragedy was realized because he had this obsession with Dionysus and he thought himself as a disciple of Dionysus. And during the end of his life, when he was becoming insane, he would occasionally sign as Dionysus. And sometimes he signed as the crucified talking about Jesus. Uh, you know, well, if you want to, whoever else was crucified, but they say he's talking about Jesus and Th this nature of Dionysus, he was the god of many forms and inexpressible depths. And for the entirety of his writing career, Nietzsche was heavily influenced by the ancient Greek god Dionysus. So he saw him almost again as this Superman, if you will. And it had to do with his, and I, I don't want to get too far into it because it's very convoluted because it is a, a, a Greek myth. But they talked about how uh, we have here uh, all of antiquity extolled Dionysus as the God who gave man wine. However, he was known as the ravaging God whose presence makes man mad and incites him to savagery and even to lust for blood. He was the confidant and companion of the spirits of the dead. The flowers of spring bore witness to him. The ivy, the pine, the fig tree were dear to him. Yet far above all these blessings in the natural world, the vegetation. Vegetation stood the gift of the vine. Dionysus was the god of the most blessed ecstasy and the most encapped in enraptured love. But he was also the persecuted god, the suffering and dying god. And all whom he loved, all who attended him, had to share his tragic fate. Again, the, back to the suffering, back to this this right intoxicated god. And and when I was doing research on this, they got into different altered states of consciousness right because dinosaurs would drink wine and get drunk and they would say that this would reveal things to people again very very weird right uh and again it's the myth of dionysus so the core of uh, the to the core of it being that greek mythology did influence nietzsche a lot and a lot of his writings if you don't understand the greek mythology and the, the philology behind it can get very convoluted. It can get like, well, what the fuck are you talking about? It's like, well, it's because you need to learn about the Greeks in order to fully understand it. Yep. We have here perspectivism, right? Truth, according to Nietzsche, is a matter of perspective, not fundamental reality. And it's the principle that perception of and knowledge of something are always bound to the interpretive perspectives of those obs observing it. And I've talked about this a lot, right? Where things are all about perspective, how you view something, what you mentioned earlier, Anderson, about what is pain to you? What is suffering to you? What is happiness to you? That's all open up to interpretation based on that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't, we don't stop to consider that, you know, we live our lives in very absolutist ways. We're like, you know, this is this and that is that look at the conflict in Ukraine right now. Everyone's got an opinion. But what's the what's the quote? Opinions are like assholes. Everyone's got one, but they all stink. Like 
Yeah, and it's Plato just, Plato said that opinions were from the lowest intellectual parts of man because they right. they they they're bred from ignorance. Right. And so when you pick uh, uh, an absolutist statement and, and aside and say, it's all this site's fault, or uh, it could be in traffic, it's all that guy's fault, or uh, whatever it may be, you're ignoring a bunch of true facts on the other side, right? Take politics. Both sides are always arguing with each other, whichever country you're in, it's the same story, right? <clears throat> but at the end of the day, both sides have correct points. Both sides have correct perspectives. Both sides also have very wrong points that they just kind of stick to because of, you know, good old fashioned tribalism. Mm -hmm. But the point is we have to first, if we want to have any hope of solving any problems in the world, uh, we have to have a discourse and to have a proper discourse. We have to recognize that everything is a matter of perspective, right? Uh, we use the, we're talking about Nazis, Nazis were democratically elected at that time. Like for them, they were, they were awesome people doing awesome stuff, mm -hmm. you know? Uh, and now it's very easy to sit here and be like, yeah, that's pretty much uh, when you type in evil, you know, that's what comes up on, uh, on, on searches for, forever and ever. It's always going to be Hitler that comes up. Right. Um, so perspective. Yeah. Hindsight's 2020, of, bro. Hindsight's 2020 and perspective is not just who, uh, but when because we tend to look backwards and judge uh like we're judging nietzsche now and we might say oh you know he was saying this that and the other about homosexuality or or making references to it but we have to consider that he was doing this back in the 1800s product of his time exactly he could have gotten hung for it like legit uh so uh, you know we have to we have to keep in mind all of these different perspectives and this bring, brings me to my next part. While perspectivism does not regard all perspectives and interpretations as being of equal truth or value, it holds that no one has access to an absolute view of the world cut off from perspective. Instead, all such viewing occurs from some point of view, which in turn affects how things are perceived. Again, so no matter what you do, no matter how unbiased you try to be, you will never view anything 100% for what it actually is. Yeah, it's impossible. And, and you know, if this type of topic interests you, uh, Simone de Beauvoir did a lot of great work on uh, how biased we are in pretty much everything. We're biased even in the way we try to be unbiased. And uh, if we try to at least recognize that we're biased, right, we can, we can be a little better. But that doesn't actually fix the problem. We're still biased. Mm -hmm. If I circle back to Nietzsche here quickly in perspectivism, um, my subjective view of the world um, is, you know, very egocentric, obviously. Everybody's at fault. I'm awesome. Uh, why is the world such shit, you know? Uh, and then I start changing my perspective. I say, okay, hold on. Maybe I'm the problem here. Maybe it's not everybody else. And I start thinking of others. I'm like, all right, while we were crossing paths on the road, perhaps I could have also slowed down when I was yield, uh, yielding. Perhaps the guy didn't cut me off. Um, uh, on purpose to try and, you know, uh, decapitate me, whatever. So as I try to see the world more objectively, to see the quote-unquote objective truth, if it exists, okay, to be a better person, to make better virtuous decisions, um, I must remember, and the ancients didn't talk about this a lot, uh, Nietzsche did, and, and uh, Arthur Schopenhauer did, our subjectivity, I'm part of this objective world. Therefore, my subjective view of it is part of the objective world. 
Therefore, I must also consider my subjective view and yours and theirs. And I cannot expect them to disregard their subjective view in the interest of my discourse. In other words, I have to be fair, right? Uh, I have to come in open-minded and I have to expect that others are going to come in open-minded. Mm -hmm. But we don't do that. We expect others to come in open-minded and then we think we're open-minded, but we don't really uh, uh, come in looking for answers. We come in trying to justify our pre-existing answers. It's a pre-existing condition, a sickness. Um, something I teach my kids a lot, and this goes straight to Nietzsche. I tell them being wrong is the best part of my day. I know most people hate it. They get embarrassed. They avoid, you know, they avoid it. And that's why I was telling you earlier on in the show, uh, you don't have to cut it out, cut out the part where I got distracted with my family and I lost my train of thought. No, this is part of reality. This is a part of the world. And part of being wrong, um, uh, the best part is you learn something. It's a low-hanging fruit to immediately improve yourself. So in my case, I know for uh, the next time I do an interview, all right, no TV time on the main floor while I'm recording. Mm -hmm. Simple, easy peasy. Uh, but I have immediately improved my situation, will to power, right? I want to do good podcast recordings. Boom. I've actually have improved myself vis-a-vis -vis half an hour ago. I'm doing awesome. There you go. And what you just said corresponds perfectly with the, my next point is that rather than attempt to determine truth by correspondence to things outside any perspective, perspectivism thus generally seeks to determine truth by comparing and evaluating perspectives among themselves. So what you were saying, you know, instead of look at that person's perspective, look at that other person's, look at the other, and instead of being like, no, wait, this is only one truth, like compare the two and have a conversation and try and find a balance between the two. Exactly. And here's a perfect example where if you would just read his stuff, because the problem with philosophy is no one actually reads the books. Even university students don't read the books because they read the cliff notes and the teachers don't want to, you know, go through the whole thing. They're long as uh, fuck, it, bro. It's a mess. <laughs> so there's a reason why I actually am more articulate in this stuff, even though I'm a CPA. I didn't go to school for this shit, but I was interested. And I got, I picked it up, right? I read it page by page. I have my highlights and notes, right? And so perspectivism is one example. After you read that, in your mind, it's clear. There's no way this guy was a Nazi. There's no way this guy was so no. unidimensional that he would take such an extreme uh, stance on something so obvious, right? So as we get into other topics with him and, and any philosopher, really, I always implore everyone, go and just read the book. You don't have to read 15 interpretations on the internet. Just read what they wrote because they're telling you. Yeah, absolutely. My next point here is the master-slave morality. It was a central theme in Nietzsche's works. And he argues that there are two fundamental types of morality, master morality and slave morality. Master morality values pride and power, while slave morality values kindness, empathy, and sympathy. Master morality judges actions as good or bad, unlike slave morality, which judges by a scale of good or evil intentions. So you have the Christian virtues and vices. Uh, for Nietzsche, morality is, an, is inseparable from the culture that values it, meaning that each culture's language, codes, practices, narratives, and institutions are informed by the struggles between these two moral structures. So you brought up the Stoics earlier where they had a scale and all these different things of what is good and evil. And back to perspectivism, it depends on the culture at hand 
that is being presented these two different perspectives or points in whatever. But he brought forth this slave master morality, which he wrote a lot about. Yeah, his his slave master morality, it's one of those, I mean, I hear what he's saying. I'm not sure what he's driving at, so I, I don't have comment on this. <laughs> You're good, bro. It's just something that was on there that I threw in there. You're good. That's all I got on that because, I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Like, there's two different types of morality. We know there's a dualism within everything. I mean, there's good, there's bad. And some people, depending on the demographic, value some things more than others. Yeah, yeah. It's the lay terms. So... <laughs> I have here one of my favorite things that I wanted to talk about. We have the death of God and nihilism, right? When, when Nietzsche says God is dead and I wanted to read an excerpt from the joyful wisdom. Do you want to add something Anderson before we got into that? No, no, no. Go for it. I'll uh, do my spiel after. So Nietzsche created the post Christian world that still dominates Western culture today. A world in which submission to God is no longer taken as a philosophical and spiritual certainty and suddenly faced with a crushing responsibility for him or herself. The post-Christian must try to engage with that which drives them, that which brings the essential sense of meaning to existence. And we have here probably one of my favorite things that I encountered throughout this research, uh, the joyful wisdom written in 1882. And it's, again, it's an allegory. And it starts off with, have you ever heard of the madman who on a bright morning lighted a lantern and ran to the marketplace calling out unseasonably, I seek God, I seek God. As there were many people standing about who did not believe in God, he caused a great deal of amusement. Why? Is he lost, said one? Has he strayed away like a child, said another? Or does he keep himself hidden? Is he afraid of us? Has he taken a sea voyage? Has he emigrated? The people cried out laughingly, all in a hubbub. The insane man jumped into their midst and transfixed them with his glances. Where is God gone, he called out. I mean to tell you we have killed him, you and I. We are all his murderers, but how have, how have we done it? How were we able to drink up the sea? Who, has, who gave us the sponge to wipe away the whole horizon? What did we do when we loosened this earth from its sun? Whither does it whether does it now move? Whither do we move? Away from all suns? Do we not dash on unseasoning? Do we not dash on unseasoning? Backwards, sideways, forwards in all directions? Is there still an above and below? Do we not stray us through infinite nothingness? Does not empty space breathe upon us? Has it not become colder? Does not night come on continually darker and darker? Shall we not have to light lan lanterns in the morning? Do we not hear the noise of the gravediggers who are burying God? Do we not smell the divine putrefaction? For even God putrefy. For even God's putrefy. And here it goes. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. How shall we console ourselves? The most murderers of all murderers. The holiest and the mightiest that the world has Heathrow possessed, has bled to death under our knife. Who will wipe away the blood from us? With what water could we cleanse ourselves? What lustrums, what sacred games shall we have to devise? Is not the magnitude of this deed too great for us? Shall we not ourselves have become gods merely to seem worthy of it? There never was a greater event. And on account of it, 
all who are born after us belong to a higher history than history Heathrow. Here the madman was silent and looked again at his hearers. They also were silent and looked at him in surprise. At last he threw his lantern on the ground so that it broke in pieces and was extinguished. I come too early, he then said. I am not yet at the right time. This prodigious, prodigious event is still on its way and is traveling. It has not yet reached men's ears. Light, lightning and thunder need time. The light of the stars need time. Deeds need time, even after they are done, to be seen and heard. This deed is at, is at yet further from them than the furthest star. And yet they have done they have done it. And that was Nietzsche talking about the death of God from the joyful wisdom in 1882. That's beautiful. Yeah. Fucking yeah. There's gorgeous. so much to unpack there. So much. But we're going to hone in on God is dead and we killed him. Um, there's three, uh, you know, uh, uh, the most common misconception about Nietzsche is that he was a Nazi that we've cleared. The next one is his quote, God is dead and we killed him. People interpret this or used to, I don't know if they still do, as like, yeah, mm-hmm. God is dead. The scientific revolution won because, um, you know, we're talking about perspective. Let's let's go back to the time he was living in. It was after the scientific revolution, well into it, right? Um, there were a lot of uh, crazy modern ideas happening, right? Let's not forget communism was supposed to emerge in Germany uh, not that long after, right? Um so when he says God is dead, it is a direct reference to Christianity, yes. And he chose Thus Spoke Zarathustra as his work in which to discuss this. Zarathustra, of course, is a reference to uh, Zoroastrianism, which is a form of an earlier form of Christianity. There's at least two earlier forms of Christianity that I know of, one of which was in ancient Egypt as well, um, with the hieroglyphs. Anyway, I won't get into all that stuff. Uh, I'm sure you covered it in one of your uh, mm. uh, conspiracy episodes. I mean, with one of the pyramids there, they had it. Um, anyway, so what he's saying is, look, Christianity sucks. And he loved the idea of Christianity. He, that's why he makes references to Jesus and the, the Savior and all this stuff. Um, as do I, as, as does any philosopher, I would imagine. He had a problem with the institution. However, he recognized that it was the only moral guide that we had. And for most people who weren't thinking for themselves, which is still the case today, um, who were looking for external guidance on morality, the church was it, love it or hate it. And with the scientific revolution, when everybody turned into these little drones working, you know, 12 hour days, uh, uh, six days a week, whatever, um, that's when a lot of these petty crimes started, you know, going up in the cities, right? Um, uh, and, and it was kind of, he was making reference to, look what's happening to us, guys. We have to find a way to guide ourselves. And it's not going to be external because that doesn't work. Let's look uh, internal and and find whatever purpose we feel like having and then go and and do it. If I can make a reference to a great movie that you introduced me to recently, uh, the famous restaurant scene from Pig, <laughs> you know, when uh, uh, Papa Nick Cage sits there and he's like, none of this matters. 
because he's talking to a chef. Let me let me put into context for your uh, for your listeners. Uh, he's talking to a chef that's you know a, a head chef of this Michelin star restaurant that's you know he's super famous, whatever. And he comes there and challenges him. He says, "Are you happy cooking this? Are you happy with this?" And the guy's like, "Oh yeah, we're super popular." He's like, "You want to do this for the rest of your life?" He's like, "You know, none of this matters, right? Because the critics don't matter." And so the ratings don't matter because this plate doesn't matter because it didn't come from you. And since you're not showing yourself to them, how can the critics come and critique your food? How can you uh, have any type of evaluation on you if you don't put yourself out there? So uh, <laughs> if I equate it to what uh, uh, Nietzsche is trying to say here, when he says God is dead, he's saying, look, none of this matters. Okay, stop doing what you're doing. This is wrong. You're unhappy. You're wasting your time. Now go figure out what it is you want to do. In the case of pig, it was what was it the the, the pub English pub with the yeah. scotch egg uh, liver scotch egg with the honey mustard whatever. And since no one loves that, he decided to open the restaurant up because he's like, well, that's not the, that's not what they want. It's like, what the fuck do you want? You know, fuck what they want. What do you want? Exactly. So he went and opened that restaurant. Presumably after that scene, uh, so Nietzsche is putting the gauntlet out to society, saying, all right. We're awesome. Look, look how productive we are now. And, and, and look how innovative we are. This is cool. Now I challenge you to also find your own morality. And science is not going to give it to you. Yeah, because he was very hard on not science per se, but the scientists, right? Like the, the you know what I mean? Like he was, I forgot how they put it, but he was, he was critical on science and he would talk yeah. against it. Yeah, yeah. So you'll, you'll, you'll remember the uh, Raven Paradox that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, on my thing, I have the Raven um, because I make reference to the Raven Paradox very quickly. The Raven Paradox is a, a um, philosophical mind experiment that proves the flaw in the scientific methodology and the scientific method. Um, I'm not saying, guys, don't believe the sciences. The earth is flat. Like, no, it's not. Well, at least I don't think so. But I don't want to alienate anyone. I concede that it might be. I concede. Um, uh, but all that to say, I, I'm digressing again. Uh, Juan's giving me the look like guy. No, no, you're good, bro. Um, <laughs> so this, right, every character within this allegory, if you will, is representative of something else, right? It's symbolic for something else. The people laughing and, and, and mocking him, right? He call those people like again the, the enlightened people of the time the scientific movement if you will where it's like whoa <laughs> where'd he go you know has he even been here this whole time da, 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 like all this stuff and the madman is again uh trying to find he because he, how you said earlier he wasn't celebrating it wasn't like oh yeah god is that's like no he was mourning the death of god because you need this in order to have some sort of purpose and i i I put out a TikTok video the other day about purpose and like, what is purpose? And uh, growing up all throughout life, they tell you, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Your parents are always telling you, do something with your life. Well, what is purpose? You know, and then somebody commented and said, hey, without purpose, your life would be meaningless. You would be unhappy. You're not working or striving towards anything, which I can, I can respect that. But at the same time, again, mm -hmm. back to perspectivism, this is something that's been put in our minds of living this American dream, which me and you have talked about a few times where it's like, Hey, what is the American dream? A bunch of debt, 
having a big house, having a bunch of cars, having a bunch of commas in your bank account. What is your purpose? Like, what is your goal? And I think yeah. that's, again, up to the perspective of the person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And my first book, Your User's Manual, uh, A Guide for Purpose and an Anxiety-Free Life, I literally, I have 12 steps, uh, one of the later chapters. I walk the reader through how to find their own purpose uh, because there is no, nobody else can tell you what your purpose in life is. And you don't have one purpose in life. Moreover, your purpose will change as your life changes because you go through different phases. Um, if we're lucky enough to be alive through many phases, we will have many different purposes in life, right? Um, and uh, somebody I like to quote a lot uh, in my first book because I talk about how finding one's purpose is the most important thing. I mean, step one is nihilism. To accept everything is for nothing. And let's not take anything too seriously. Well, he believed that the death of God led to nihilism, that would it would lead eventually to this meaningless soulless life of just wandering through the void, if you will. That, that was his concern too. Well, and he wasn't against that because seeing what the church had done, and again, he's taking pot shots with uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra directly at the church, seeing what the church had become, nihilism had to be the next step. Uh, and uh, that's exactly, uh, that's a good seg to what I was saying. The beginning point to any mental sanity in this life, because think about it, man, this thing is messed up. We just were alive like that. We didn't ask to be alive. And then we're told, hey, you're going to die one day. You're going to cease to exist and you're never going to get to see everything you love ever again. And we're not going to tell you when. And that's it. Off you go. There's no guide for life. Like what a what a messed up prospect, right? Um, so nihilism is the starting point first we have to accept that nothing we do in this life is worth anything nothing we're not going to be able to bring any of this with us anywhere uh, uh even if we do some great work uh it'll be forgotten in a generation or two you know what i mean mm -hmm. like uh, nihilism is the starting point cool then what do we just go jump off a bridge like no i'm here uh let me have some fun uh all right that could mean just go and party it up live you know for the day, uh, go uh, go wild, wild out, or live in the moment and try to do something with this time that we have. Uh, and if we want to do something with this time, we have to have a purpose, some type of direction. Externals are not in my control, but I can still have a general direction that I can march towards. That's my purpose. Um, and he who has, and this is the quote, and it's from Nietzsche, that's why I'm bringing it up. He who has a why can endure anyhow he who has a why can endure anyhow okay yeah so you can uh process any situation if you have a reason to exactly if you have a purpose in life you will just keep on marching mm -hmm. no matter what life throws at you because you know which path to take in a sense exactly and you have motivation to keep it you know, i'm going to do that i'm going to do it for a lot of people in america it's the american dreamer i'm going to get that car i'm going to get that whatever and and mm -hmm. they'll work towards it through thick and thin right yeah because you can't have a script without like a you know a what's the what's the plot what's what's the the problem what's the solution to the problem i mean when people write movies out they present all these things out without that you wouldn't have a good script or a good movie so it makes perfect sense to me Exactly. It makes a lot of sense uh, all the way to the end. Uh, my critique is always one, and it's the same one as before, and I'm going to repeat it again and again. If we don't plan what we want to do, we risk doing damage. 
if you just run out into the world and start doing shit, Nazism happens. Like mm -hmm. they too thought they were doing good. Like yeah. let's slow it down a little bit and think things through guys. Right. The conflict in Ukraine. Did we really have to start shooting guns? It's like, come on guys. You know, there's other ways around this. I get both sides have, you know, their, their crumbs, but let's keep on talking. Like it's these type of simple, and I'm sure you hear a lot of stoicism in this. And that's why I keep saying like his work is, and, and stoicism overlap a lot. It's just, can we just be rational? Can we just think and, and talk without emotions? Um, and, and talking of symbolism, the, the other thing you mentioned in there, the guy running into the market looking for God, where is God? It reminds you of Diogenes, right? Remember, he would walk around the market with his <laughs> yeah. lantern like, are you an honest person? Are you an oh, honest shit, person? Yeah. So he's making reference saying, guys, God is dead. Okay, good, because we don't, we don't need that false, you know, uh, idol. But now let's go find God in the marketplace, because who is God? Everybody everybody's rational mind is a piece of that cosmos because he also believed in the log in the logos he believed in spinoza's god which is the universe um he was looking for god in everyone's eyes like diogenes are you an honest person are you aware of who you are or are you lost in this nonsense wow yeah i didn't even think about it because again back to the greeks he was inspired by them yep. and i didn't make that connection where he was yes, sir. yeah shining the the lantern in everyone's face i have a couple of points here uh so we can wrap this death of god up uh i believe it was from the gay science and nietzsche recalls a fable he recalls that after the death of buddha it was said that the shadow of buddha remained in the cave for a long time after uh, you know, apparently he was staying in some cave after he had been gone. And the shadow remains. And what the shadow is, Christian morality. And we have to vanquish that shadow. Uh, so again, in Thus, uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, where he takes a hit at Christianity. And he he's on this crusade, right, with, with Christian morality and, and how oppressive it is and how... Uh, you know, they're preparing, they're burying their dead and they're preparing for this other world whose laws are opposed to be subjective, which means you demean this world and you demean what is natural. And that this is what we absolutely must get rid of. So mind you, since earlier on in his life, when he lost faith in religion, he had this dogma towards it of wanting to get rid of it and wanting to dispose of it. But then you have people saying here, uh, Christian morality without a Christian God is nonsense. So again, without a God, without this morality, you have no purpose, right? It, it's, it's, it means nothing, which leads to nihilism. This is nothing. And I have a nihilistic side of me too, where I go, you know what? Like I mentioned earlier in the show, before we were recording, what the fuck are we doing this sometimes for? You know what I mean? Like you're doing, putting in all this work. It's like for what, when you really sit back and you think about it, you go, what the fuck is the point? <laughs> you know what I mean? But, uh, and this is a great sec to my stuff. If, if this is triggering anyone going like, huh, I have to live more purposefully. Look out my stuff. This is exactly, I mean, exactly what I write about the uh, three book series, finding your purpose, controlling what you can, uh, being able to have these conversations internally. Um, but, but just quickly, the, the Christian morality cannot exist without the Christian God. That's true because Christian morality 
necessitates a belief in this hierarchical structure. It necessitates a belief in an afterlife. It necessitates a belief in a cosmic reward system. Suffer here and now. Later on, we'll do good by you. Just suffer here and now for mm -hmm. us for now. Uh, so Christian morality has no place in the, in forget the modern world, in our species. It's just, it's, it's oppressive. It's wrong, right? Uh, so nihilism is absolutely, absolutely necessary. Uh, it, we must get there. He was pushing the world towards nihilism first, but Germany was already there. So it was mm. challenging the society around him to lead the way in, uh, you know, he saw the scientific revolution. He was looking for the moral revolution. Mm -hmm. uh, he didn't have the answers. He was challenge, uh, challenging society to, to come up with something. He only saw the demise, which we're still living today. Did the Nazis, did they follow uh, Catholicism or Christianity? Do you know that the answer to that question? Uh, no idea. I know there was a lot of uh, occult stuff, Christians that with uh, Heim, Heim, what's his name? The other one there? Heimlich, uh, I think. Head of the SS, Heim, Heimler or Heimlich or whatever. Himmler, right. Yeah, I know you're talking. Himmler, yeah, that's the one. Uh, they went looking for the Ark of the Covenant and stuff. So, but, but I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I didn't look that up. I didn't really think about this. And I want to, uh, so we can bring this to a close. The, the, he wrote the Antichrist, right? And right here. Translate, yeah. And translated in German can be translated to anti Christian. But Antichrist is what each is really saying here. He calls the Antichrist because it was a collision of values he was talking about. And if he had the, he had had life, he would have worked out some of the, some kind of constructive philosophy, but looking at it uh, on a reevaluation re re of all values, we've got to get rid of the old values. We've got to create new ones. So, exactly. Nihilism first. Yes. And then you create the new ones. Yes. Yes. So wipe the slate clean, make new morals, values, virtues, whatever you want to call it, and then proceed from there in order to have that why. Because in order, if you have the why, you're able to, what was it? Uh, endure anyhow. Endure anyhow. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, did you want to take a break now? Five minute recess and wrap up. I have will to power eternal return and the Uber Mensch. Which we can keep going. I'm actually good, surprisingly. But it's up to you. We can take a ten if you need to top up uh, or see the wife. No, I'm good. All right, let's keep going. All right. So next on the list is will to power. Again, another central concept uh, for Nietzsche. It is best understood as an irrational force found in all individuals that can be channeled toward different ends. And again, this inspired Aleister Crowley, where he understood that this will within us is used for certain things. And again, they use it for a lot of other things. Because back again to philosophy, it can be open up to a lot of interpretations. Aleister Crowley used it for more sex, magic, rituals, and all this other bullshit. And that's what they believe that to be. Uh, Nietzsche explored that the idea of the will, will to power throughout his career, categorizing it at various points as a psychological, biological, or metaphysical principle. For this reason, the will to power is also one of Nietzsche's most misunderstood ideas. So when I read this, I'm like, here I am, some random podcaster, where for forever, this is going to be one of the most misunderstood things, uh, w uh, philosophies of Nietzsche. But then here I am on a podcast trying to fucking put it all together. <laughs> doing a great job <laughs> so we have in his early 20s Nietzsche read the world 
as will and representation by author uh, Arthur Schopenhauer and was captivated by it. Schopenhauer offers a deep pessimistic vision of life. And at the center of it was this idea that a blind, ceaselessly striving irrational force he called will constituted the dynamic essence of the world. This cosmic will manifests or expresses itself through each individual in the form of sexual of the sexual drive and the will to life, quote unquote, that can be seen throughout nature. It is the source of misery since it is essentially like an unquenchable thirst. The best thing one can do to reduce one's suffering is to find ways to calm it, to calm it. This is one of the functions of art. So again, back to the Greeks, he understood using arts and different, he was a composer and all these things to express himself and all, all, you Mm -hmm. know, things of that nature. Uh, And in his book, The Birth of Tragedy, Nietzsche poised what he calls a Dionysian impulse as the source of Greek tragedy. Like Schopenhauer's will, it is an irrational force that surges up from dark origins and it expresses itself in wild, drunken frenzies, sexual abandon, and festivities, festivals of cruelty. His later notion of will to power is significantly different, but it retains something of this idea of a deep, pre-rational, unconscious force that can be harnessed and transformed in order to create something beautiful. So that's where the idea came from, again, from being inspired from these other philosophical minds of the time or a little bit earlier than his. And he took that and he ran with it. He used the will to power to make his own version of whatever it was he was trying to convey. Exactly. And that's a great example of what will to power is. Um, Decide on what it is you want to do, right? Figure out a what and then just do it. It doesn't matter the how, just do it. And that's all it was. That's all. That's all he meant. The whole will to power thing, uh, the Ubermensch, uh, you know, especially when it got tied to Nazism, it got this whole kind of like uh, uh, esoteric, uh, you know, uh, a story behind it. But all it means is when you decide on what you want to do, just do it until you die. Mm-hmm. If you can't, you die. Cool. If you can, you move on to the next one. There's no excuse not to. The will to power as Nietzsche presents it is neither good nor bad, is a basic drive found in everyone, but one that expresses itself in many different ways. The philosopher and the scientist direct their will to power, their will to power into a will, a will to truth. Artists channel it into a will to create. Businessmen satisfy it through becoming rich. So again, back to this metaphysical aspect, a person who was very very rational and talked about i have a quote here that says remain faithful to the earth and do not believe those who speak to you of otherworldly hopes so again he believed that the rational world since it is the only reality we are able to experience follow that stay focused on that and and that's why he criticized people like plato who talked about the upper eons and the demiurge and these very, because again, they paved the way. There were products of their time that paved their way towards, you know, for Christianity and things of that nature, Kabbalah and all these different religions that are more mystical, because again, they were promising people like, Hey, as long as you're good in this life or whatever it may be, you're promised this higher state of consciousness. You're going to go to heaven. You're going to go to hell, whatever it may be. Uh, So again, 
uh, he was he believed that meta metaphysists were degrading the real world or reality, and the visible the visible world is the only reality which one can which can be experienced. God, yeah. You hear a lot of overlap with stoicism there, right? Things like just stick to reality, stick yeah. to rationality. You see why he's like one of my favorite uh, modern day philosophers. Even when he says um, will to power is not good or bad, this is where he's making a, a direct reference to stoicism. It's not the act of trying to do something that's good or bad. It's your intention. What are you trying to do? Right. I might be trying to help an old lady cross the street, but I might trip and fall and accidentally push her into traffic and she dies. <laughs> right. My intentions were pure. I should theoretically be able to sleep a few weeks later <laughs> after the trauma's over. <laughs> it's a horrible example, but it, it, it kind of, you know, paints the picture. <laughs> and that, that's so fucked up, bro. Uh, but yeah, the, the the will to power is the logos, right, to the Stoics, this uncontrollable force. That depending on where you focus it, you focus your intention, you can manifest it to be whatever it, it can, you know, whatever you want to create with it. Uh, so we have here, did you want to add anything else to the will of power? No, no, we're, we've covered it. Well, yeah, actually, I brought, uh, I, I had brought a prop for this, the 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 new NFL team owner, I guess this mm -hmm. is a good, is a good time to bring it up. <laughs> so do you do you like football? Like, do you follow the NFL a little bit? The only sport that I watch is MMA and boxing, bro. All right, cool, intense. Um, well, I, I, I'm a Packers fan, and one of the reasons why I like the team is because it's the only publicly owned team. It's the only publicly owned professional team that I know of. Interesting. Right? Uh, as a as a hardcore you know socialist for me, that that's like well, that's awesome, because what happens when a team needs a new stadium? Right. The, the piece of shit bajillionaire owner will hold the city hostage until the city agrees to dish out $100 million. And then how does the city make up that money? They tax everybody. Not just the fans, not just the people who are fully affiliated with the team, but everybody. What does the Packers do? Because it's a publicly owned uh, team, they just issue more shares. And so fans can go buy shares, multiple shares, whatever. And that's how they finance the team. This way, zero taxes on anybody other than uh, the people who want to watch what's happening. So I went out on the last, on the last um, uh, uh, share sale and I bought one share of the Green Bay Packers. <laughs> one share. <laughs> so I'm going to uh, Wisconsin in July. To give my little one vote uh, uh, as, a, as a Packers owner, uh, and that is going to be my one very tangible way of doing something against what I disagree with in the league. Many things I disagree with, uh, everything from those goddamn referees to uh, racism and, you know, Kaepernick, you know, I got your back, bro. I'm going to vote to help, help, help get you out of uh, need jail, man. Um, anyway, so, uh, will to power, what could I do? Well, I could, there's one team where I could go buy a share and go give a vote and Hey, I can, I can make my opinion heard. Cool. So that's what I'm going to do. There you go. You have the, what you have the, why, and then you executed with, we're practicing philosophy in real time as we record this podcast <laughs> talking about the will to power. So again, it's about 
overcoming things and making it to what you want to do because you can take anything. It's like the spirit of destiny that you can use it for good or you can use it for evil. So this will, this metaphysical aspect of whatever this realm is, you use that, you harness, it's the force, right? You have the yeah, Jedi exactly. and you have the Sith. And depending exactly. on how you use the force determines the outcome. It's beautiful. Exactly. And be, and before we close the, the will to power, I have to remind the listeners one more time, very important, specifically because you decide what you do with your will to power. Think about what you're trying to accomplish. Try to think as objectively as possible of what impact it might have on the world around you. And, and try not to be a dick before you go and, and go on a crusade. Uh, make good decisions before you decide, I'm going to do this and nobody can tell me otherwise. Because if you're being a bad human being and a bad member of society, even if you're doing you know, will to power, you're not being, you're not being good. You're mm -hmm. by definition being bad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, it's a, But again, Anderson, that's up for interpretation based on your perspective. It's up to the individual, exactly. Up to the individual, exactly, exactly. I have here the eternal recurrence, which is probably one of my favorite ideas that Nietzsche proposed. And Nietzsche's idea of the eternal return or eternal recurrence is one of the, his most famous ideas, again, yet also one of the most misunderstood such a misunderstanding often arises because there are two perspectives or ways to interpret this idea, leading some to confusion regarding exactly what Nietzsche meant by it. Nietzsche sometimes writes of the eternal occurrence as a one scientific theory and two as a psychological test. So in this scientific theory, we're going to use it as a scientific theory now. Uh, this is seen in quantum physics, right? The multiverse, uh, we, we, we talk, the, you know, the multiverse idea where there are multiple universes all happening all at once. That time has already happened. Everything in time has already happened. We have the matrix, right? With, when they have deja vu, they go, oh, they change something in the programming, all these ideas. The eternal return as a scientific theory is the idea that all events and experiences in the universe will be repeated again and again for all eternity. Nietzsche based this theory on a few assumptions. One, that the universe contains an, a finite quantity of energy, law of cons conservation of energy, and two, that the possible states of this energy can assume that the possible states... What the fuck? I wrote that wrong. That the possible states this energy can assume is infinite or finite, and three, that time is infinite. And based on these three premises, he concluded that everything that happens will be repeated ad infinitum. Uh, I think, I hope, hopefully I said that right. From a personal point of view, this means that our own life and everything that happens to us and everything that we experience will be repeated again and again and again. And he presents it. I'm trying to find the quote where he talks to you. Oh, here we go. Uh, no, I guess it's not there. Where, Anyways, in one of his books, he talks about what if a demon came to you and told you that everything that you're experiencing will happen to you over and over again it makes me think of morpheus right like hey either you wake up you take the red pill or the blue pill depending on what you want to do this one here beyond good and evil Is i was just going to bring this one up i i could have swore yeah here we go i could have swore i fucking uh, wrote it here but i guess not so uh, we were just talking about this before too when we end the the section on will to power 
and I was giving the listeners a cautionary word on, you know, pick and choose uh, what you want to do before you run out there and do it. Because uh, unlike the ancient Greeks who studied a lot of ethics, right? In ancient Greece, um, there were three fields of study in any philosophy. It was logic, physics, and ethics. Nietzsche doesn't get much into ethics when he's challenging um, common thought, like uh, general societal thought. He talks a lot about will to power, guys, break out of the mold, go do your thing, da-da-da. He doesn't talk so much about how to decide on what to do. Here is a small window into his interpretation of how to determine what is morally good and what is morally wrong. And uh, it has been misinterpreted as um, the eternal return. But what he was trying to talk about is this demon say, okay, if you're going to make decisions, assume you're going to live this life again. And you're going to have to live it with the exact same decisions in the exact same way. And you're going to live with the exact same consequences to your decisions again and again. And again, and again, and again. Imagine you will live the exact same lifetime a million trillion times over. Now go out there and make decisions. It's almost like Kant's categorical imperative where he's saying, look, let's just cut the bullshit. Can we just stop trying to draw a gray line saying, oh, this might be interpreted as... No, everything is either black or white. There's no gray area. Truth is truth. Does it hurt feelings? Sure. Does that make it morally wrong? No, that's the feelings' problem. That's the other person's problem. I'm going to tell the truth all the time, right? That was Kant's categorical, uh, categorical imperative. This is kind of what Nietzsche is getting at in another way. And Kant, another German mm -hmm. uh, philosopher, a Germanic philosopher at the time that fed into his uh, ideology, his yeah. way of thought. Mm -hmm. uh, so decide on what you're going to do. Because you're going to, in a way uh, where you're going to have to suffer the consequences a bajillion times over, and then you'll probably end up doing the right thing instead of just thinking emotionally in the moment and then, like, uh, you know, uh, dealing with the consequences later. I'm trying to pull up here on my phone. I had taken some screenshots where there's a, there's a show, I believe it's on either HBO or Showtime, The True Detective, and... They say in it, time is a flat circle. Everything we've ever done or will do, we're going to do over and over and over again. You are reborn, but in the same life you're, you have, you've always been born into. And this YouTuber, uh, the rugged Pyrus, I guess is his name on YouTube. He compares the, the eternal recurrence to a DVD, right? And when you play a DVD, you, you watch through a DVD, the actors, everybody's doing the same thing over and over again. When you replay it, they do the same thing over and over and over again. So again, it's the same thing of, you know, what will you, what would, how you're saying, what would you do differently if you were to live this life over again? Because think of it as life being a movie, which I do think it's, it's a movie. And that's why Nicolas Cage makes all these different movies and shit where they're, he's reinventing himself. The newest movie coming out next month, which I'm super excited for. It looks like it's going to be hilarious, bro. I don't know if you watched the trailer to it, but it looks fucking amazing, bro. No, I'm detached from movies. I wouldn't have watched Pig if you didn't send me that clip. <laughs> well, I'm going to have I'm going to I'm going to send you the the trailer to this new one and the name is uh, The name is hilarious too. Hold on. 
the unbearable weight of massive talent. And Nick Cage plays Nick Cage <laughs> in it, bro. It's fucking, dude, it's amazing. Oh, it's, I it's love this so guy. Nick good. Cage, I love you. Hashtag Team Cage. Yeah, bro. It's. I'm going to ch- send you the trailer so you can watch it, and you're going to laugh your ass off because oh. it's fucking amazing. And Did you watch those early movies I told you about, by the way? I, one in Vegas? No, I haven't. I've I've oh, had, yeah. again, I've been very busy, so I've had time. But I, I've been meaning, I'm going to get through them. We're going to get, we're going to, we're going to do this, Anderson. We're going to watch all of them. And I was actually going to play, I got in 60 seconds the other day and I fell asleep. So, <laughs> but yes, so life is, think of it as this Blu-ray DVD. And when you play a movie over and over again, the actors all do the same thing. And again, back to the Ouroboros, the Gnostics, where they talked about reincarnation. The Pythagoreans talked about metempsychosis, where your soul would travel to different things based on your karmic scale, right? They would go based wherever, you know, if you were a timid person, you would be reincarnated as a deer or a small rabbit, some timid animal. If you were an asshole, you're probably reincarnated as a vulture because you're feeding off the carcasses and the death and decay of everything else. So they talk about that. And then they get a little bit metaphysical because they talked about the, who is watching this DVD, who is watching our lives, right? Who is behind the fabric of space and time watching and, and replaying our lives over and over again. And then the, you, that's where you get the conspiracies of the Demiurge and all these other crazy metaphysical things. But that sounds a little egocentric, doesn't it? To think it that we exist, therefore somebody must be watching us. It sounds <laughs> no different than, oh, there's a guy in the sky watching us wearing a toga and sandals. Like, yeah, yeah, or or, or where somebody's marble, right? And the men in black where they're playing with the mar- the universe is in the marble. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's the same thing. Yeah, very ego. Uh, how you said, very. Ego, uh, egocentric. Yeah, I do believe there's much, much more to this life after this temporal earth because, I mean, it, it makes sense to me. Everything we observe in the universe has some type of continuation, right? The law of thermodynamics, mm-hmm. uh, second law of thermodynamics. The, our consciousness, we don't understand what it is, but we know it's energy-based. It lives in our cells somewhere, either in our brain or stomach, because there's a lot of neurons in the stomach too, right? Our consciousness might be there for all we know. But we know it's energy-based and all matter is energy. It's energy-based, mm-hmm. right? It's just matter. Uh, when energy slows down, it forms this physical field that we see and touch and whatever. And so if we know for a fact that all energy has some type of continuation and we know consciousness, though we know nothing else about it, is a form of energy, therefore it must also have some type of continuation. Our body decays and decomposes into the earth. Our consciousness must go somewhere. Now, does that mean I will be aware in some type of next life where the consciousness reforms itself in a way with all its memories that I can look back and be like, oh, yeah, I did make it. Like, that's kind of hard to believe. It's it's improbable, but it's a possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but as a stoic, and, and I think Nietzsche would want us to see life this way, it's to come back here and look here and recognize we can speculate all we want about what's going to happen after. We don't know, and we can never know. Therefore, we should never be making moral decisions here based on what might or might not happen later on. Mm-hmm. Let's focus on reality, on what we can see right what here, we right experience. now. Exactly. We can keep speculating and theorizing because that helps expand our cognitive thought as well. 
uh, maybe we'll learn a better way to do ethics one day. Let's keep talking about this stuff. But realistically, tangibly in this temporal world, like stop stabbing people uh, for the sake of doing good. You know, that's good. Yeah. Uh, uh, Pretty straightforward. From a, from a certain perspective, Anderson, because I'm sure some serial killers to them, that was their truth. <laughs> You know what I mean? I'm gonna start using Touché. I'm gonna start Touché. using psychology and, and, and philosophy now in all my life. Uh, be like, well, you know, why'd you run that red light? Well, I mean, to me, you know, I interpret it as it was, you know, color is just a fabric of of reality. It's just something that I don't adhere to, right? So, you know, I'm, I'm gonna start using that everywhere I go now. Let me know how that works out in the human society. Yeah, because society doesn't listen to this shit so much. It's full of Karens. Yes. So we have. The will to power, the eternal mm. return or recurrence. And in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, these are the three major teachings that that Nietzsche puts forth. And the last one and the, the last point that we'll be touching on, uh, where the word Uber comes from, the Ubermensch. I hope, hopefully I'm saying that right. Because I've heard it said like a bunch of different ways, like Ubermensch, like, well... Uh, German is a very like rough, you know, like uh, uh, aggressive language. So it's like the Ubermensch, you know. What I mean, like the, I guess that's how you say. It. I, I don't know. Do you know how to say it, Anderson? Save me, right? Ubermensch is how I pronounce it. But then again, even Nietzsche's own name. Some people will absolutely crucify you if you don't articulate the T. Whereas mm. uh, others will just whatever. The guy's got enough non-vowels in his name. Like we're we're good. We can drop a T. So the word Ubermensch, right? The, the first English translation rendered is be, as beyond man. And is later it was named Superman. However, this promoted its misidentification with the comic book character Superman. And it, it has also been called the, the superhuman or the Uberman. And it's this idea. And, and dude, the, these stories, you know, I had never really dove down these concepts of Nietzsche and all these other philosophers, but he talks about the tightrope, the tightrope walker, right? And it's all symbolic between, you know, between two extremes, you're on this tightrope and beneath you is this abyss, right? And, and, and you as a man need to navigate in order to make it to the other side, whatever it is that you want to call it. But he had different ideas in this uh, thus spoke Zarathustra and one of them being this overman that you will eventually get to this point in life where you will I think it was in this book where he talked about the snake in the mouth and it was choking him I think it was thus Zarathustra where he said hey bite down and the snake signifies everything that's choking you up everything that's holding you back and when he bit down on it, that he was finally able to dis dislodge the serpent from his throat, he laughed a laugh that I had never heard before. And this was the laugh of the Ubermensch or the Overman or the Superman, right? Because it's this being that you're able to become through overcoming everything, right? Through You're able to reach this level of enlightenment that you're able to overcome whatever life throws at you, you know? Mm-hmm. And when I was reading this, you can kind of, uh, not saying that he was a Nazi, but the Nazis did take some of his ideas, okay? And they misconstrued them. And maybe the Ubermensch for them was, right, the ideal man. 
the 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 philosopher king for Plato, where you know it was these people above society that only they could govern based on because they were this higher state of consciousness, this higher level of consciousness. And Nietzsche being one of the ones that brought forth this idea, this concept of the overman, where you know you're able to evolve into this being by overcoming obstacles in your life or whatever it may be, right? Yeah, As yeah, you walk nothing, that tightrope. Nothing affects him, right? Nothing external seems to affect him. He's just like water off a duck's back. Well, at this point in the episode, I think we're picking up a pattern. I think everybody now gets a sense of who Kant, uh, who uh, um, <laughs> Nietzsche was. We spoke about uh, his, ref in discussing his work, we made references to Kant, Schopenhauer, uh, the Greeks, you know, stories of Diogenes, Stoics. He tends to grab ideas that he likes and then puts his own twist on them. Um, so what is the, you know, Ubermensch? It sounds like Ubermensch, Superman, right? Mm -hmm. And then we know he was associated with the Nazis. So right away, everyone goes <laughs> to that power, 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 right? Like, oh, Joe Rogan, let's go get that. Uh, no, I didn't say Joe Rogan's a Nazi. I didn't say that. It was just wrong. I think you, I think you did, bro. And then they're going to clip no, that. No, and they're no, going to no. use that shit. I, I meant to say like strength and go, go get it, right? Like don't take no for an answer. The, the American way to go get the bull by the horns, right? Now, if we, if, we, if we take a step back and look at his work, how he wrote it and why he wrote it, he liked the ancient Greeks, right? And the ancient Greeks also believed that the masses were not happy. They were not virtuous. They had the capacity, but not very many could be virtuous. Mm -hmm. Only the philosopher could. And who should the philosopher use as a guide? Because like a carpenter uses a ruler to make sure he cuts a straight line, if we're seeking moral goodness uh, and ethical virtue, we must have some type of guide, right? And the ancient Greeks uh, would refer to this person um, like a Socrates, right? A sage. A sage is someone who is not your average person. Uh, a sage is a moral, a moral superior in the sense that they, they seem to know what's right more often than not. So... Uh, they could be a good guide for me. A sage is uh, someone who nothing external seems to affect them. They just kind of do what they're doing, right? The world revolves around them and they just keep, they just keep hammering on. Um, and the sage is the highest level of enlightenment you're supposed to try and attain. But the Greeks and Stoics were always very clear in that a, a sagehood can never be attained. It is, it is as mythical as the phoenix, right? It's just a target we go towards, like the horizon, but no matter how fast you go, you'll never get there. Mm -hmm. It's just the goal. Um, now, if I go through that list one more time and keep the list for Ubermensch on the side, a sage is not your average person. Your Ubermensch is not your average person. It's the ultimate sage form is a, of a man. Ultimate form of a man. Whatever that is. A, <laughs> well, uh, a highest level of enlightenment. A sage is the highest level of enlightenment. A sage is your moral superior or guide. Superman, your ubermensch, is supposed to be your superior and guide. Uh, a sage, nothing affects him. Nothing external seems to affect him. He just does what he's supposed to do. Same with the ubermensch. Nothing seems to affect him. He just does what he's doing. So the ubermensch, to me, is very clearly the Greek sage that he has reformulated in his work to say, look, this is who you have to try and be like. 
the same way he says at the beginning of his book, most of you are too stupid to understand what I'm writing. Uh, at the end, he's saying most of you will never attain this level. But you got to try. Yeah. You got to try and you all have the capacity. Absolutely. And we have here, the overman is the ultimate form of man. It is the one who overcomes nihilism by creating his own values and focusing on his life, not the afterlife. He puts all his faith in himself as an autonomous creator and relies on nothing else. He is the pinnacle of self-overcoming to rise above the human norm and above all difficulties, embracing whatever life throws at you. He is one who overcomes mediocrity and is not afraid to live dangerously. And then he, it's quoted, the overman shall be the meaning of the earth. So how you're saying to master yourself, to become this sage character, right? And that's why uh, they say Pythagoras, he was the first, supposedly the first one to coin philosopher because sages know the knowledge. Philosophers are seeking the knowledge. So it's like you can't run before you can walk type of thing. So you need to first learn and through that learning, maybe eventually, you know, according to whoever you read, you can achieve that higher conscious state of consciousness or you can never or you never can. You'll die trying, you know. Uh, they always say, I'm, I'll die trying. You know, I'm going to do this, but I'll die trying if I have to. I think that's one of 50 Cent's uh, <laughs> uh, album names. I think it's like, get rich or die trying. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's right. It's, but, you know, uh, Nietzsche would say, and I would agree, if you're trying, well, you've done it. Because there's nothing to accomplish. It's just, it's like the horizon. You can never get there. If you're just mm. trying, hey, you're already doing it. You're aware of the higher plane you're already at the higher plane and you're thinking more uh, uh, clearly, more objectively at a higher level, at a cosmic level. You found your why independent of man-made borders, man-made concepts, societal pressures, uh, all the stuff. You found your own meaning um, and you're just, you're, you're doing you. You're doing you. So we encourage the listeners to do you, you know, be your own Uberman, be your own Superman and look within for the answers and practice stoicism, practice philosophy, you know, take some of the things that you learned about today and put it into practice, which I'm, I'm working on Anderson. I'm working on practicing what I preach. Cause I talk about a lot of enlightenment and all this other bullshit and I don't do any of it. So it's time to put it to practice time to put the tires down on the pavement, how they say, or whatever the fuck, however they say it, you know what I mean? You, you know what I'm talking about? You get what yeah, I'm talking I, about. I got you. I got you. <laughs> <laughs> so, that was Frederick Nietzsche. Again, this is Philosophical Ramblings. Hopefully you took something from this. That's all I got for you guys today. And I, enjoy, I enjoyed this, Anderson. I enjoyed looking into this. And I can see how it drove Nietzsche insane, trying to figure out the answers to morality and trying to figure all that out. You know, his problem was, he's the, out of all the philosophers I love and enjoy, he's the only one that never really admitted he cannot find the answers there are no answers to these things but he could never admit it or at least uh he lost his mind before he could yeah and he lost his mind in case your listeners didn't know he lost like great mind right he lost his mind so much he was coprophagic at the end if you don't know what that means is he was eating his own poop that's crazy he was eating his own poop that's how crazy that guy's mind went all from syphilis uh, oh. though that was around the same time when his stuff was being distributed with the Nazis. So, uh, again, it wasn't him. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, it's a shame that he could have lived longer and see the fruits of his labor and maybe could have stopped some of this misinterpretations that were 
being associated with his name. Could you, yeah, could you imagine how that would have shaped everything? I always think about that. Like, what if an artist would have never died, right? A musical artist would have never died. Like, the music he would have put out after the fact, like, how that would have changed the very fabric of a society that we know today. Crazy. Like, think about the same region, uh, Albert Einstein. If he doesn't write that letter uh, uh, about the A bomb, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, then what happens? The Germans develop it. Then, then where are we now today? You know, like, they would have won the war (laughs) (laughs) crazy so anderson had a great time today bro i think this was a good episode i think we dove deep down into again this is every topic that i talked about could be its own episode on its own so this is a very is a crash course on nietzsche and i encourage people to check out the work because it resonated with me a lot of things that he talked about and Sometimes you know about a certain person in history or a certain figure in history and you don't actually look behind their philosophy and you can actually find a lot of nuggets of truth that will help you and, you know, your self-development to become the Superman. There you go. <laughs> so thanks again for coming on, Anderson. I appreciate you. One more time for the listeners, where can they find your work and uh, what are we going to do next? Are we going to do another one next or what? <laughs> Maybe no, something I'm, I'm more familiar to- with? <laughs> I'm always open for more. Uh, the next one, uh, you let me you let me know, man. After you take your little break, uh, but I do have a road trip for my. Uh, I'm meeting a few podcast uh, listeners in uh, June or July, so we might have to do it after that. Uh, we'll see. Awesome, dude. Uh, cool. Yeah, but you can find my stuff stoicismforabetterlife.com. All my contact info is there, or just hop on the social at Anderson Silver, uh, Anderson Silver author, or one or the other um stoicism guys uh nietzsche his work is great but it can be a little complicated stoicism uh a little bit more interesting but can also get complicated if you're curious about things like the purpose of life and virtue and whatever uh check out my work it's it's high level summary stuff if it interests you then you can dive deeper into uh you know heavier texts but my whole shtick is philosophy for us normies because it can get heavy. And uh, Juan, you did a great job today trying to summarize uh, a little bit of Nietzsche into our lives. I was freaking out, bro. I was freaking out. But the, the, there was another <laughs> installment to philosophical ramblings because that's what it is. Ramblings of two. or I mean, I'm incoherent. I'm not going to speak for Anderson, but. Um, uh, you can, me too. I concur. We're one of us. One of us. Thank you so much, Anderson. Had a lot of fun today. And thank you for those that listen. Make sure to follow me on social media at the one one podcast on all social media platforms. Patreon.com slash the one one podcast for exclusive content on there. And we'll see you on the other side.